Hello, and welcome to the Williamsburg Unitarian Universalists. We are a vibrant liberal religious community that treasures diversity, practices justice, and teaches love and respect for everyone. We grow spiritually through worship, shared learning and service, and relationships that go deep. As we say each Sunday, whoever you are, whomever you love, whatever your image of the holy, your presence here is a gift. All are worthy, all are welcome. Good morning. I'm Bob Edwards, your worship associate today. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to Williamsburg Unitarian Universalist online worship service. Our greeter today is Jim Kent. Our other worship leaders today are our minister, Reverend Laura Horton Ludwig, our director of religious education, Austin Peterson, our choir directed by Dr. Jamie Bartlett, and our assistant director of music, Dave Robbins. If you'd like to follow along with the order of service, I invite you to visit wuu.org to download a copy. If you're visiting today, we're glad you're here. We invite you to say hi by chat, typing a quick note into the Zoom chat. And if you'd like to sign up for our email list, please fill out the online visitor form at wuu.org. Now we'll turn it over to Ben Puckett for a special announcement. Good morning, everyone. It is so great to see everyone this morning. In addition to officially kicking off spring, today marks the kickoff of another annual giving campaign. I'm Ben Puckett, the chair of our annual giving team, and I'm proud to be working with an outstanding team. And they are Ty Alexander, Paul Luxinger, Martha Aleem, Jim Kent, Fred Gilbertson, Dave Banks, Ann Tetro, and Alan Cook. Once a year, we ask you to make an annual financial commitment, a pledge for the coming church year, which begins July 1st. You can count on it every year, just like taxes. What a year it's been since we kicked off our giving campaign in the gathering hall last March, the the last two Sundays we met in person. All of us have been affected profoundly. We've adjusted our ways of living, working, worshiping, and socializing. We've grieved and are grieving over lost loved ones. We've discovered our inner resilience, and we've come through this year-long journey with new hope. I've gained new appreciation for what WUU means to me and to us as a congregation. As our team discussed this campaign, we realized that COVID-19 has impacted our members in many different ways. For some, it has meant financial struggle. Others have been more fortunate. Our congregation is a small example of how the world should work those who are able supporting those less able. I want to make an important point here. What we give to WUU is a rich combination of not only financial resources, but our time and our talents. All of these are needed and the biggest gift of all is our presence. The opening words we hear every Sunday are really true. All are worthy, all are welcome. One thing I've learned is that WUU folks are generous people. They always respond when pledge time comes. Another thing I've learned is the magic of how gifts of all sizes combine to make the campaign goal. This year's goal is $415,000. It's what's needed to support our staff and continue the ministries of adult faith development, religious education, 
social justice, music, the caring ministry, and many others. Our facilities also need to be maintained, even though not in use at the moment. Your pledges provide more than 80% of the overall budget. And with the loss of some other sources of income, that percentage is even higher. A few weeks ago, Reverend Laura shared a story about a group of small birds that saved a forest from a fire. It started with one bird who brought water on his wings from a lake to douse the fire. That bird's small contribution didn't do much to put out the fire. But when all the other birds joined in, slowly the accumulation of contributions got the job done and saved the forest. Some of the birds were larger and could carry more water, and some were stronger and could make more trips to the lake. But it took all of them to put out the fire. What a great analogy for our annual giving campaign. It truly takes all of us giving what we can to make WUU what it is. If you're tempted to think what you can give is not significant or not needed, remember the story of the birds. It's fitting that we kick off our campaign during this month with the theme of a people of commitment. The commitment we make through our pledge each year is a tangible expression of what WUU means to us and as such is a deeply spiritual practice. One of our biggest concerns during this time of physical isolation is that there is an increasing feeling of becoming disconnected as a congregation. I know you share the longing I feel to gather again. I miss the physical tactile experience of in-person fellowship and worship. This pandemic has tested us and reinforced the importance of WUU in our lives. We need WUU and each other more than ever. As I close, I'm pleased to announce that so far through the early phase of the campaign, we've received $262,480 in pledges, representing 63% of our goal. After the service, members of our team will be available in the breakout groups to answer your questions about pledging. I close by thanking you, each of you, for what you bring to WUU, for being you. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Now, please enjoy our prelude music by the 19th century German composer, Robert Schulman. A picture and music of a festive masquerade ball, the German waltz from Carnival. Again, welcome. We're happy you have joined us via live stream, audio, or video, or Zoom. Whether you have come seeking comfort and encouragement or inspiration, you belong here. You are seen here, even if we cannot see you physically. Now I invite you to join in singing and saying and welcome words Please, as you say these words, speak them to each other and know that we are connected across the distance. The worst words are pasted in the Zoom chat. Let's say them in unison. Folks on Zoom, we will unmute you so that you can hear each other. Come. Whatever you're in, holy. Whatever you're in, holy.
Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, everybody. It's wonderful to see you today. So welcome, welcome back to our month of asking, what does it mean to be a people of commitment? And uh, perhaps that is a loaded question on this annual Giving Campaign Sunday, but here's what we're not gonna do today. We are not gonna give you a laborious explanation of why you should feel committed enough to this congregation to give lots of money. Because first of all, that would be really boring and who needs boring these days? More to the point, as Ben said, it is unnecessary. This congregation is committed. You are generous. I have every expectation that this campaign is going to be a success and our ministries are going to thrive in the coming year because of you. So I will just say thank you in advance. Now, what we are going to do is tell a story about commitment. It's a story about a young woman born in 1835 on a Michigan prairie who had the audacity to believe that she, a woman, could become a minister and serve every bit as well as a man. Her commitment to herself and her dreams led her to achieve what everyone else told her was impossible. And as you'll see, this is also a story about a man from Connecticut who became the most famous circus impresario in the world and something of a scoundrel and one of the most famous universalists in the world, utterly committed to his faith and ready to support it however he could. And when the Reverend Olympia Brown and P.T. Barnum crossed paths, well, Watch out, world. Let's see what happens. Come, let us worship together. Now, please join me in saying the words to light our chalice. If you have a chalice or a candle handy nearby, please go ahead and light it now. As we spotlight the Miller family lighting a chalice. Again, we'll unmute you and say the words in unison. We light the light the system you have there. That's really cool. You know, it reminds me of prairie time in Michigan. So I'm curious, who here is a Michigander? Who here has been to Kalamazoo? I've never been to Kalamazoo, but what a cool name, right? Just looking to see if we have anybody piping up. Oh, Sean, okay. So the woman that I want to talk about, the Reverend Olympia Brown, is somebody that I feel personally and professionally I owe so much to. Both Reverend Laura and I owe so much to this woman because of her vision, her tenacity, her grit, her sense of humor, and her spirit of commitment. Olinda says she sprained her ankle skiing near Kalamazoo. Ooh, ow, ow, ow. Well, I hope that's healing up. And Piano Dave says, I have a kazoo. Well, hey, great. So in January, and I'm gonna ask you another question. Who here is a January baby? Ooh, we have quite a few January babies, I see. So Olympia Brown was a January baby. In the prairies of Michigan, near Kalamazoo. So think with me back to 1835. I'm thinking it was probably pretty cold. I didn't even ask the farmer's almanac. I think it's a safe bet. Kalamazoo, January, cold, right? And let's think of a couple other things. No cell phones, no phones, no elastic, no penicillin. So many things that I know I take for granted. 
Oh, Nan Hart shares, I have a Tweety Bird book that takes place in Kalamazoo. That's awesome. That is awesome. So we have Olympia Brown and she is born, that is her context, 1835. And she grows up in Michigan and she has um, some parents that are committed to liberal religion. They're committed to education and they're committed to education for their daughters which frankly, what are the chances? Not good. So she has a good start in life and her parents support her going to this new school. Some of you may have heard of it, it's a college and it was called Mount Holyoke Female Seminary. Did anybody here go to Mount Holyoke? And it had only been open a couple of years at this point. And so Olympia and her sister, they go there and Jamie Bartlett's saying, yeah, been there. Um, but at this point, way before Dr. Jamie gets there, there was this weird sexism going on. And I'm just gonna name it because, and this is what happened and this is true and I'm sorry to say it, but Olympia Brown was in a chemistry class and the chemistry teacher said to all of the women in the class, now don't worry, you don't need to actually remember all of this. You just need to know it well enough to make intelligent conversation. Blech. I mean, that just makes me crazy to even hear. It's kind of like, um, oh, don't worry, you're pretty little head about that, right? I mean, ugh. And so Olympia Brown must have felt the same indignation I know I feel hearing that statement and said, all right, I'm transferring and I am going to transfer to Antioch College. And I know we've got some Antioch grads. And she goes to Antioch and I don't mean to say that there are no problems in Antioch. Of course there were, but she graduates from Antioch and she sees another woman preaching sermons. And she talks about this time as just like this lightning bolt moment of knowing for sure that women could preach the word of God and that women had things to say and that women should be heard, should be listened to, and should be ordained. Whoa, this was not a thing that happened. This wasn't even a dream that most people had at this point. You have to remember, women didn't have the right to vote. A lot of women didn't work outside the home for money. It just wasn't the done thing. Most congregations would have demanded a male preacher, a male minister. And so, and a lot of people are saying, are sharing that they went to Antioch, that's great. Um, and so she applied to seminaries and one seminary told her in, her in their rejection letter to her that it was too great an experiment for them to undertake. Can you imagine? I mean, that's, it's just almost ludicrous to my ears at any rate. And there was another seminary she applied to where a man named Ebenezer Fisher said, you know, I don't think that you're correct. I don't support you, but as a universalist, I'll say this. I think that's a conversation and agreement between you and your higher power. And if you think that you have a calling to the ministry, then I will do everything in my power to help make it happen. And I think that's one of the great morals of this whole story. People in power helping those who weren't in power at that time. And so I would ask all of us, who is it that you might be able to admit into the seminary? What, what, what does that mean in your context? Who could you help with the power that you hold? that might not otherwise have a chance. And so Olympia is the first woman to go to St. Lawrence Seminary and she has a hard time. She is challenged. I don't mean to say that it was like an easy road, but she does it and she works hard and she graduates and she applies to the Universalists and she is ordained officially. She is the first woman to be ordained by a denomination, which is huge.
And so she goes to many places and is lead minister eventually at a big church in Racine, Wisconsin, among other places. And I want to share with you a quote about her preaching. The Superior Daily Leader, a newspaper, describes her as the female beecher of the rostrum. So the, the newspaper's comparing her to Henry Ward Beecher, who was considered to be, you know, one of the greatest speakers ever, and maybe another story on him later. But I mean, this woman worked really, really hard for a lot of years. And one of the things that she preached about was equality of men and women. She wanted the right to work just as hard as a man and to publish and to be heard. And that is the victory that she won. And the other thing that she wanted, the audacity, right? She wanted the right to vote. And she wanted the right to vote for all women. And she worked really hard for it. And she won it. And this woman lived to be about 91 years old and got to see women in America get the right to vote. So on so many levels, I feel that I owe her a great debt of gratitude and also a great debt of gratitude to her husband who supported her mission in life. And by the way, she didn't change her name when she got married, which for a woman born in 1830 was really um, unusual. And so she is the Reverend Olympia Brown, the first female ordained minister. And she was a universalist and she believed in women's suffrage and in equality. Quite a thing to be committed to and quite a fight to fight. So I invite you, whatever mentoring you can do that would help someone else up in a similar way, what could it be? Thank you so much. Blessed be. Mm, thank you, Austin. Thank you for sharing that wonderful, inspiring story with us. And now I invite you to be in a spirit of meditation, reflection, and prayer as I offer these words of gratitude for our ancestors by Priscilla Murdoch. On this day, we have reason to celebrate. We have reason to be grateful. We have reason to be proud. We gather in the shadow of a world unsure of itself, of a planet under threat. And yet we have cause to be hopeful. Our forebears have given us an example of perseverance in the face of uncertainties and hope in the face of difficulties. The problems of the days of our ancestors were hazardous, but not overwhelming to a determined people. The problems we are called upon to deal with in these times are indeed difficult, but not beyond our capacities. This congregation was gathered that we might have a place to come together to share our hopes and our faith. It is today the congregation that our founders envisioned, but with a wider vision and perhaps a wider, if not stronger, hope. Our hope lies not only in the inner strength that our religion teaches us to nurture, but also in the example of those who went before to show us the way. Our founders have built a congregation for us and it is ours to hand on to our children and to their children. May the light of reason, the comfort of kindness, the depth of a growing spiritual life, the work of justice, and the acceptance of our own goodness and potential always be our inspiration and the source of our continuing gratitude to all those who have carried the torch that today we hold high. May this be so.
And now let us add our spoken prayers and reflections, concerns and joys for loved ones and for our world. What would you lift up today? I invite you to use the Zoom chat if you wish. And I will begin by naming two things. First, a joy, a very happy spring equinox to all who are celebrating. But then I do also want to lift up our deep prayers and concerns for those who were killed in the Atlanta spa shootings this week and to lift up our commitment to end racial violence of every kind. Our hearts are with these wonderful people and their families. And now holding all these joys and sorrows everything that is shaping our lives this week, I invite you to add your silent prayers and meditations as we join together in silent reflection. May hope and strength and love find all who need it. Amen and blessed be. And I invite you to seal this time of quiet by perhaps singing along, perhaps just enjoying this next hymn. The melody is an old American folk tune. The words are by a 19th century Irish pastor who became the Archbishop of Dublin. Cease to give 
cease to have such is the Each Sunday, we make an offering from the bounty we are blessed to enjoy. We do so in the spirit of generosity and in recognition of our ongoing commitment to serve our world and share our values. If you are joining us for the first time, please feel free to give if you wish. And also know that your presence is gift enough. We are offering today goes to our general operating fund, which supports just about everything we do. If you'd like to give through a website, please visit wuu.org or click on give online at wuu. If you'd like to give by text, please text the dollar amount of your gift to 757-500. 0688 at 757-500-0688 and follow the prompts from there. Or if you prefer to give by check, please mail your check to WUU 3051 Ironbound Road, Williamsburg, Virginia 23185. And thank you so much. Our offertory music is Dave's cover of a song by one of the great American song singers and songwriters, Tom Watts. It's inspired by the life of Johnny Eck, who was born with a truncated torso that made him appear to be cut off at the waist. He became a world famous in the 1930s as a sideshow performer with circuses like Barnum and Bailey's. Well, my mama didn't want me on the day I was born. I was born without a body. I got nothing but scorn. But I always loved music. All I had was my hands. I dreamed I'd be famous. I'd work at the sands. Singing tabletop Joe. Tabletop Joe. Well, everyone will know I'm Tabletop Joe. I had trouble with the pedals, but I had a strong left hand. I could play Stravinsky on a baby grand. I said, I'm going to join the circus. That's where I belong. So I went to Coney Island, I was singing this song, Tabletop Joe, Tabletop Joe, everyone will know I'm Tabletop Joe. They gave me top billing in the Dreamland show. I had my own orchestra Starring Tabletop Joe Now the man without a body Proved everyone wrong I was rich and I was famous I was where I belonged Tabletop Joe Tabletop Joe now everyone knows that I'm Tabletop Joe. 
Thanks, Dave, and thanks again to Tom Waits. So I invite you now to think back to the story Austin told us about this young woman, Olympia Brown, who was determined to become a minister, even though it was the middle of the 19th century and most people believed her dream was ridiculous, impossible even. Well, as you heard, Olympia Brown persisted. She was a fantastic preacher, even as a student, and she convinced enough of her male colleagues to support her that on June 25th, 1863, that's 158 years ago, she did become the first woman to be ordained a minister by a religious denomination in the United States. I'd love to share with you her picture. Let's see what she looked like in those days. Yeah, there she is. There she is. That was uh, around 1863, right about the time she was ordained. I want to add that uh, for me in particular, Olympia Brown has always been a, a very special role model. She and I, um, I, I got goosebumps when I learned that she and I have the same birthday, January 5th. And I also spent a year as a student minister with the congregation she served in Racine, Wisconsin, which for many years now has been known as the Olympia Brown UU Church. There's so much I wish I had time to tell you about her life. Her aunt and uncle were abolitionists who ran a station on the Underground Railroad. As Austin mentioned, as a young woman, she herself began to campaign for women's suffrage. In 1867, she took a few weeks off from her ministry position in Massachusetts to do a pro-women's suffrage lecture tour of Kansas, which was so successful that Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton tried to convince her to give up her ministry and become a full-time paid suffrage activist. Looking back, Olympia Brown was not a perfect role model. In some ways, her understanding was limited. In 1868, she got into a big fight with the great Frederick Douglass, because even though Frederick Douglass supported women's suffrage, he believed that it was more urgent to focus on guaranteeing Black men the right to vote. And they had a conversation, they were at the same conference together, and he tried to explain together that Black men's lives were at risk every single day in ways that white women's lives simply were not. Olympia Brown just, she didn't really get it. If she were around today, I expect she would have a much more sophisticated understanding of intersectional feminism but she saw the world through the lenses available to her at that time. Just wanna name that. And it is true that in spite of discouragement after discouragement, she persisted as a leader in the women's suffrage movement for another 58 years, 58 years until women finally won the right to vote. And she herself cast her first ballot at the age of 85. There's way more to her life than we possibly have time to tell today. So for now, I will tell you that she did turn down that job offer from Susan B. Anthony because her heart really wasn't congregational ministry. And I wanna tell you about the new ministry position she took up in 1869 with the Universalist congregation in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Let's take a look at what that building looked like at the time. Yeah, here is the, the building of the Bridgeport Universalist Church um, somewhere around 1869, which is when Olympia Brown began her ministry there. And so now I wanna invite Bob Edwards to hop in and give us a taste of what Olympia Brown was like as a preacher. Here's an excerpt from one of her sermons. Stand by this faith, work for it and sacrifice for it. There is nothing in all the world so important as to be loyal to this faith, which has placed before us the loftiest ideals, which has comforted us in sorrow. Strengthen us for noble duty and made the world beautiful. 
Do not demand immediate results, but rejoice that we are worthy to be entrusted with this great message, that you are strong enough to work for a great true principle without counting the cost. Go on finding ever new applications of these truths and new enjoyments in their contemplation, always trusting in the one God which ever lives and loves. So she was good, right? But at first, things were a little rocky at her new congregation in Bridgeport, Connecticut. A small but vocal group of congregants really, really, really did not want a woman minister. And this is where our story takes a turn because among Olympia Brown's new congregants was one of the most famous people in the entire United States, P.T. Barnum. Let's take a look at P.T. Barnum. Look at that face, wow. So this is um, him in 1851. So you can imagine, um, leap forward in time about 15 years. And uh, that's when the two of them met. Now, P.T. Barnum was a very complicated person with a lot to love and a lot of things that make us look back now and say, whoa, that was not so good. So obviously the whole sideshow thing of putting people on display is highly problematic. I mean, we just need to name that. Back in 1835, when P.T. Barnum was 25 years old, his very first sideshow star was a woman named Joyce Heth. She was an enslaved black woman whom he paid to rent for a year. Um, he paid the, the, the person who owned her at that time. Somehow a rumor had gotten started that this lady, Joyce Heth was 161 years old and had been George Washington's nurse. Now, obviously, even in those days, people would have known that was absurd, but still people were curious and Barnum had a great instinct for what people would want to see and how to make money. And he thought he could make quite a lot of money exhibiting this lady. Now, he was by no means the only person in those days who uh, was exhibiting human beings like that. And as far as I could find out, he had a track record of treating the folks uh, who exhibited for him with care. But still, you know, it's not good. It's not good. I am not here to defend the way he put people on display. I can tell you that by 1855, 20 years later, he had also become famous as an abolitionist politician. He helped found the new anti-slavery Republican party. There was a shift in his views. And by the 1870s, he was also lobbying to abolish the death penalty. So he, he, was, a, his, he, he was a complicated person. His legacy is not simple. And P.T. Barnum was also the member of that Universalist church in Bridgeport who did more than anyone else to support his new minister, Olympia Brown, and to support the financial health of the congregation. Olympia Brown, in her autobiography, recalled that every week after the service, P.T. Barnum made a point of complimenting her on her sermon. And I can just imagine him doing that quite publicly within earshot of all the folks who were grumbling about women in ministry. And honestly, I want to say thank you to him for that. You all know that ministry is a partnership between congregants and ministers. We can't really do anything without you and your support means so much. Now, Olympia Brown was not shy about leaning on her famous and wealthy congregant when the congregation needed money. When there was a fundraiser that needed to happen, she would uh, ask the folks who could afford it to really pitch in. She would make a blanket ask and then she'd go visit P.T. Barnum and say to him, Mr. Barnum, I mean you. By this time, he had been elected a representative in the Connecticut House. Later on, he served as the mayor of Bridgeport. So he was an important person. Uh, but when Olympia Brown asked, he said, yes, ma'am. 
and pulled out his checkbook. Over the years, he was a regular monthly pledger. On top of that, he paid to have the sanctuary repainted. He bought Tiffany windows and a new organ for the congregation. He helped build a parsonage. He donated land to the congregation. And ultimately, he left the congregation $15,000 in his will, which translates into about $400,000 in today's, uh, in the, the, the equivalent today. He also made an enormous bequest to Tufts University, which was founded by Universalists. So he stood by his faith and then some. And why? Well, later in his life, he published a pamphlet called Why I Am a Universalist. And I'm going to post the link to that publication into the chat in case you'd want to read it. It's not too long. It's good reading. So here you go. That's the link to P.T. Barnum's Why I Am a Universalist. Let's hear a short extract now read by Bob Edwards. Thanks, Bob. I was educated in the strictest so-called orthodox faith. When I was from 10 to 14 years of age, I attended prayer meetings where I could almost feel the burning waves and smell the sulfurous fumes. I remember the shrieks and groans of suffering children and parents and even aged grandparents. I would, I would return to my home and with the utmost sincerity, ask God to take out of me, out of the world. He would only save me if he would only save me from hell. I professed to love God, said I hoped I loved him, as I heard my elders do. Necessarily before the seething sulfur sea of flame, my love must have been similar to the love of a woman would feel a tyrant who with a loaded pistol pointed at her heart bade her love him or die. I grew to know that true love cannot be forced. We cannot love the unlovely. Isn't that amazing? Listen to this again, P.T. Barnum. My love for God must have been similar to the love a woman would feel to a tyrant who with a loaded pistol pointed at her heart bade her love him or die. Or in other words, if you love a God who threatens to send you to hell, it is as if you are a victim of domestic violence and God is the perpetrator. Wow. Barnum, on the other hand, believed in a God of love, a God who took care of everyone. That's what led him to stand by this faith, to work for it and sacrifice for it, in the words of his minister, Olympia Brown. Today, we remember P.T. Barnum as the founder of the greatest show on earth. But I think he would have agreed his beloved congregation was working to create the very same thing that we are today, and that is the greatest love on earth. A love without boundaries, a love that holds everyone and everything, a love that leads us to joyfully work and sacrifice for justice, that spreads a table with abundant blessings for all. So may we, in our turn, build that love and spread it and share it. And in the wonderful words of Olympia Brown, may we be loyal to this faith, which has placed before us the loftiest ideals which has comforted us in sorrow, strengthened us for noble duty, and made the world beautiful. Amen. And now I invite you to listen to our W Choir singing the great South African song of courage and commitment, Siahamba.
Now let us say the words to extinguish the chalice. And that we invite you to blow out your candle at the same time. We will paste the words in the Zoom chat. Again, we will say them in unison. We extinguish the and I invite you now to hold out your hands and remember that we are connected. We are one community. And may this community be blessed now and always in our coming and our going, in our laughter and our labors, in our daring feats of creativity and our simplest daily acts of service. Go in peace, go in strength and go in love. So may it be, amen and blessed be.